Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. I'm Matthew Gill. Before we start the event, um, just a few brief housekeeping arrangements. Uh, there are no planned fire alarms today, so if the alarm does go off, it's for real. Please follow the directions of the event staff. Uh, we'll be tweeting from at IFG events using the hashtag IFG Harry's. So please do follow and tweet along. If you're watching online, please send us questions. You can see the box to the right of your screen to put those in. Um, it's great if you can tell us your name and where you're viewing from. It gives us a bit of uh, a bit of colour, and you can start submitting questions now. It's open throughout the throughout the session. Um, for those in the room, a microphone will be available during the Q and A portion um, of the event, and we'll have a video and a sound recording up on our website uh, within 24 hours. Professor Dame Jenny Harris is the inaugural Chief Executive of the UK Health Security Agency. She was previously the Deputy Chief Medical Officer for England. She served on the Joint Committee for Vaccination and Immunisation and worked in a wide variety of public health roles in the UK and abroad. She was awarded a Damehood in the Queen's New Year's Honours List this year. Um, Dame Jenny, it's a real pleasure to welcome you. Thank you so much for being here. And before we begin our conversation, um, uh, I know you'd like to say a few words about your vision for the UK Health Security Agency. I would, so I'll just stand up and do that. I hope everybody can hear me okay. Uh, so uh, we will start off. As, I, uh, as has been said, I've just got a few slides. I'm absolutely delighted to be at the Institute this morning. Um, thank you all for joining. Um, it's a real pleasure, actually, and a privilege both to be leading the UK Health Security, UKHSA, uh, but also to be able to come and share a bit of a vision for the organisation going forward. I'm also very aware that um, the uh, Institute has been very interested in the public health organisations and how we've carried that over from previous systems um, and have been really interested myself to read the products we were discussing this earlier that have been produced and reflecting on that as I'm working through developing and building a new organisation for the future. And some of the issues that have been raised there are exactly the same ones which I had separately and independently arrived at myself. Um, I'm going to focus in a moment on uh, the, the main issue, I think, which you would expect me to be here, which is health protection. But I wanted to flag some overarching ambitions for the organisation. The first one is uh, we are not simply about protecting lives and responding. There is a different vision ahead and a different purpose for this organisation, I think. Um, first one is we are now part of uh, the national security infrastructure. So biosecurity and um, uh, biological surveillance are very clearly on the map going ahead. Secondly, I hope that the organisation will become, uh, if it's not considered already, a UK world leader in science, so we will contribute to the UK science superpower ambition and status. And then finally, and I think this is often not as obvious, we actually will and can and are contributing to economic growth in the country, and that is both um, indirectly, if you like, by protecting individuals who are able to contribute to the economy, uh, improve productivity from wellness, but actually in a direct way, and I will come back to this shortly, working with industries, particularly with pharma, um, to ensure that we are using all of the research that goes on in this country to, for example, deliver new point-of-care testing, which we've seen come through in the pandemic, um, but particularly in the area of immunisation, which I think is um, going to change hugely as we go forward. 
Um, I've now realised I should have tried the gadget before we started. Uh, wrong way. Uh, the, the key area, obviously, uh, we all want to live in a world that's secure. Um, and there's just a few introductory slides here to, to show that. There are new health threats emerging all of the time. Um, and if I move on, hopefully successfully this time, it's not just about infectious diseases. Um, the, the picture on the right we put in a few, few weeks ago, but um, you only need to look at the papers uh, from a couple of weeks ago to see the almost apocalyptic scenes around heatwave to realise that these threats are much wider than just an emerging pathogen. So the organisation has at its heart a real mission. Uh, we're here to be the nation's expert health security agency to prepare, prevent and respond to these challenges. But in doing that, what we're doing is bringing together a very new, unique blend. We have world-leading science. We increasingly have really uh, good levels of data analytics and we have operational expertise to do that. And our ambition is to protect every person in every community. Um, that's actually... UK-based, but because of the work that we do, our reach is internationally as well. Um, so if we look back um, over the last, uh, just say, 10, 15 years or so, um, we can see that there are a number of different uh, health security threats that are around. Now, in fact, as a nation, regardless of which organisation is providing health protection, we already deal with somewhere between 10 and 13,000 incidents every year. Um, they won't all rise to this level. They'll be dealt with locally and regionally. Uh, but it, uh, for most of these, they are going on quietly in the background, which I think is an important point when we look at organisational awareness and the capacity and skills that we have. So, for example, if we go back, we have had uh, floods. Uh, we have predominantly in um, Somerset and, again, uh, more recently in the north of England. We've had uh, two pandemics. So we've had uh, COVID-19. We've had swine flu in 2009. And then we've had a number of uh, various infectious diseases. So, for example, Ebola in 2013-14 in West Africa did not directly impact the UK, but we were part of a critical international response because it's now very clear that we are such a globally mobile uh, system that any infection or disease in another part of the country can have very, very significant effects here. And if we look actually just uh, since um, the UKHSA has been born, and that's only last October, so just a few months ago, we've had cases of Lassa fever, um, the monkeypox outbreak, we've had the heat wave, uh, and of course we are continuing, despite what I think sometimes is said, we are continuing to manage the pandemic, which very definitely has not gone away. So although these are all um, health protection threats, many of them, in fact most of them, need a wide population and system-wide approach, and it's that system element which I think is really important. Um, some of them have been really successful. So I think Ebola, for example, uh, was a, a good example of government working across the system together. Um, obviously, you only have to think about it. it was in West Africa. We had uh, the army out there, um, Public Health England at the time built, uh, the army built the labs and Public Health England put in and trained people to do the testing. Uh, we had the foreign office working. Uh, we had uh, NHS staff going out from the health service. So it's a, a really good example of how the system works together. But we do need to keep improving um, that baseline level of readiness. Um, and I think we're going to do that by having shared research agenda, uh, working with uh, and across government institutions, with academia particularly, uh, and with uh, 
industry to uh, ensure that we can view these challenges, see them ahead and have the right systems and preparedness in place. Um, on this slide, it really just signals the interface of the organisation, which, um, just from what I've said, you will realise uh, is very broad. And this is one of the challenges for the organisation. So if we start at the top, although actually many of our team are literally sitting uh, in local towns and communities working from local upwards, we have international activities. So, for example, uh, working with WHO, uh, working with uh, various centres for disease control and prevention, whether that be in Europe or, for example, uh, in the US. We speak with them regularly, uh, both formally as an organisation, but also individual scientists will be speaking on a regular basis to gather information in both an informal and formal way, uh, which contributes to our active surveillance. Um, we also, of course, work on uh, IAMPFI, uh, the Institute of uh, National Public Health um, uh, agencies um, to ensure that learning is transferred across between different nations and actually that the capacity, so getting the right people with the right knowledge and training is in place, not just here, but in other countries as well. Then if we look nationally, of course, uh, we have academia have proved to be really, really important partners. Uh, many of the SAGE members are working in academic institutions and have contributed right through the recent pandemic. Uh, we need to work with research funders. We particularly need to work with industry and commercial partners. We have the Royal Medical Colleges, for example, um, and then the ones organisations which I'm sure you would immediately think of right across Whitehall, uh, different other government departments, other ALBs, um, and our key colleagues, uh, the NHS and our Professional uh, Public Health Directors uh, Association. But then uh, when we go locally, it is really important. So I always say, um, and, and we may come into this in the conversation, uh, I've worked in a number of different areas, but the place I always go back to when I'm thinking about how I'm going to respond or whether a policy or programme is going to work is back to putting my old director of public health hat on, whether that be in Wales or in England, I've worked in both, and said, does this seem a sensible proposition here if I was a family round the corner from this uh, uh, local government building, would they understand it? And can I see how it would work upwards and outwards? And I continue to do that because unless we can reach right out to the members of the public, public health will fail. So a really critical point. Um, and that really flags the importance of local uh, authorities, uh, the local resilience uh, for and partnerships in our um, contingencies response arrangements, and then the local representatives of those national organisations, so obviously NHS commissioners on the ground. I think it's important at this point just to, to flag some of the things which we have learned from the pandemic so far, because it's been um, a lesson, I think, for the world, not just for the UK. Um, understanding novel pathogens, we will have new pathogens rising. Um, and uh, UKHSA at the moment is contributing to work on building uh, an international pathogen surveillance network uh, and very definitely improving the surveillance systems that we have. And that's not simply about the detection of the bugs. It's actually about the data that goes with it in order that we can analyse that and draw conclusions and see changes as uh, preferably ahead of, but as they're arising. Um, I think we also have learned from the pandemic asymptomatic transmission. I use that just as an example, but characteristics of new diseases are, can be very, very difficult to spot early in um, a particular crisis. Um, and so thinking through what those arrangements are for research very, very early on is an important area. 
We've also developed in this country huge testing uh, facilities and capabilities um, and, uh, uh, and pharmaceutical interventions, and we've led much of the world in that latter. So uh, most of you, I'm sure, will be aware of dexamethasone. The studies that we did on that uh, were because we have as an infrastructure, as a standing state, a national health system and a national research system, which allows us to push forward something that is of importance urgently and without cutting any corners, any safety or any ethical boundaries, get to an answer about whether an intervention is beneficial or potentially harmful and then uh, use that. So the work on dexamethasone, which is a very cheap uh, drug to use, um, has been of importance worldwide. Monitoring and surveillance, again, I'm sure many of you um, will have been watching our dashboard. Uh, in fact, during the pandemic, it was one of the most viewed pages ever um, as the data went through. Now, it won't be quite as uh, uh, clear at the moment as it is because we've stepped down some of that testing. But nevertheless, behind this, we commissioned the um, uh, Office for National Statistics, Statistics Community Infection Survey and a number of other important surveys, the SIREN study and the Vivaldi study, to make sure that we are keeping an eye on COVID. But those surveillance uh, systems are operating for many, many infections in the background on a daily basis. Um, obviously, stakeholder collaboration is critical um, in the sense of being ready and prepared so that you know who you're speaking to before the crisis happens and you know how, how to work and how to interact. Um, and then, although it's last on the list, health inequality, uh, when the public health system split, if you like, and UKHSA was formed uh, and uh, the uh, health improvement agenda moved to OHID, uh, the Office for Health uh, Inequalities and Disparities within the Department of Health, there was a lot of concern that the health inequalities agenda would fall off the horizon. For me, this is absolutely critical. We've seen through the pandemic that any infectious disease, and in fact any health threat, will seek out and significantly harm those populations who are least able to cope with that to start with. So health inequalities is right at the top of our agenda. And then just looking forward, the key building blocks for, for us uh, as an organisation uh, we obviously want to be a system leader for health emergency planning and response to ensure that we have resilient systems and we have system readiness. But uh, as I said right at the start, we want to be a global leader in health security. And this is very clear in our title now. There's a very important and significant change. We are a health security agency working with the other pillars of security in the national infrastructure and contributing uh, proactively to international surveillance. Um, we also um, uh, want to, uh, as I said, be part of that national security infrastructure. And then the final point, which is where I started, is this is a much wider opportunity for, for us as an organisation, but for the country as a whole. We have absolutely brilliant scientists in this country who sometimes are hidden from view. And it's those scientists who have been contributing to um, working with industry, creating the vaccines, ensuring they're out into people's arms and um, keeping the country safe uh, as we go forward. So I will stop there, and I'm sure there will be lots of questions for people to answer, which I'll be glad to do. Many thanks, Jenny. Thanks. So um, 
let, let me begin actually with the with with the um, the area you flagged, which is your your prior experience as a director of public health in in various regions of the UK. Actually, um, I wonder if you could say a little bit more about um, what that experience enables you to bring to bear that might otherwise be missed from the perspective of a national agency, and why it's important. Um. So I've probably alluded to some of that already. I think it's... um, I'm probably sitting on my mic. My apologies here. Um, I I think, having come into central government quite late, actually, so I'm now technically a second permanent secretary in the Department of Health, as well as a chief executive of the UK Health Security Agency. Um, And uh, the civil service is brilliant. um, And I actually find it really exciting to be in that environment. Uh, But sometimes it will be a criticism from outside, I think, that people think nationally and particularly London-centric and are unaware of the reality of some of the services or the systems on the ground. So I think the fact that I have worked, uh, for example, in primary care, in hospitals, uh, I've worked overseas in different health systems, uh, I've been a chief officer in many local authorities, and uh, I've worked as a regional director for Public Health England and with regional NHS systems, Bringing that into a role is a hugely powerful um, uh, ticket, really, both to have conversations with key stakeholders, uh, but also to ensure that there's a bit of a check and balance in what is being proposed nationally. Uh, One of the reasons that I've been driven to rise, if you like, up into senior management is not so much because I ever particularly wanted a title. It was because I wanted to see something done. I wanted improvements. Um, And what do you... uh, My comment would always be, don't stand on the sidelines. If you can see a way of doing something uh, and you're shouting from the sidelines, then perhaps you need to step forward and take that role and make it happen. And I wonder also whether your emphasis on health inequalities comes from that background as well and, and, and seeing the importance of that. It, it absolutely does. I mean, there's both a scientific element and, uh, you know, the public will have seen through, if you only have to look at the epidemiology, we, we can see. So even now, we will be able to predict where more harm will come from uh, another wave of COVID, for example, because we know which communities, which local areas, which individuals have not felt competent enough to come forward to have a COVID vaccine. And that is basically the uh, our armour at the moment. We now have both treatments and vaccines in record time that we had, didn't have at the start of the pandemic. Uh, but the predictability of where infection is going to hit hardest is, is, is quite sad in many ways. And so part of our work is to try and build the confidence uh, in and uh, be very transparent and open about how these interventions um, are created. So a vaccine, for example, explaining so that people feel comfortable and are confident to step forward to protect themselves. But you're absolutely right. In local authorities, there's a very, very clear pattern. You will know which streets uh, people are most likely to have multiple problems um, and it's important, even for things like heat waves or flooding, uh, we know that it's those individuals who have flooded houses and have perhaps not been able to insure their properties who then go on to a cycle of harm. Yeah. It's really interesting. And, and, and your presentation really brings out the, the multifaceted nature of the role that you're, you're performing, which, which is both a, a, a clinical, technical role, but also a role of institutional leadership and trying to partner with a wide variety of organisations locally, nationally and internationally. Um, how do you reconcile all of those various different imperatives and, and where, where do you try and focus? 
well, we are building an extremely large stakeholder map, as you can imagine. Um, and it does stretch out exactly as you say, both into um, uh, influencing and engaging and listening, really important on the, uh, on the scientific and clinical side, um, making sure all the right governance and steps are in place uh, on a managerial side, and then obviously influencing upwards and outwards on, on the political agenda. Um, and, uh, and that is not just in the UK, it's, it's internationally as well. So it's a challenging task, but actually I think it's, it's both the challenge and the opportunity. So um, as a, a, a clinical professional, and obviously most people prior to me taking this role will have seen me standing up and delivering scientific uh, comments probably on the epidemiology uh, of infectious disease. Uh, there is a, a degree of authority that goes with that. You have the evidence uh, at your fingertips. And therefore, if you're in a more managerial meeting, it allows you to have with you the evidence base to influence decision-making uh, in a very real way. So I see that as an advantage. Um, uh, there are, obviously, uh, you have to be... Um, you need to be around the table in order to influence the decision-making. Um, and uh, And I think... Being there and having, uh, and I might say we have always had the respect of, of government, of uh, senior official colleagues in doing that, um, that we can actually contribute that directly to the centre of decision making. Yeah, That's a question that started to come in online, so please do keep sending your, your, your questions from our, our good friend uh, Anonymous, um, who's uh, interested in following up on, 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 on the, the stakeholder issues by asking, what lessons have you learned from other countries' health agencies uh, and, and, and adapted for use by the UK HSA? Yeah, um, it's one of the um, slight personal bugbears, actually, that often there was criticism about, you know, the UK didn't learn from other countries. The reality is, well before the pandemic ever struck, uh, we, uh, and I realise some of that period will have been in a, in a pre-Brexit world, but we had, um, as a public health system, very, very strong relationships with all sorts of other parts. So we contribute, we field senior um, professionals into many, many different WHO boards, for example. We uh, run WHO collaboration centres in various areas, so for, for nursing and midwifery, for prison health, a whole whole array of different areas. And we link routinely and have many memoranda of understanding with uh, different public health agencies overseas. And so to that question, uh, I think people need to realise there is a background level which perhaps Perhaps is not obvious, but we are strengthening those. So just um, a couple of weeks ago, for example, uh, we renewed um, a, a memorandum of understanding with the uh, South Korean equivalent agency. Um, and that, of course, was an agency which did very well, but in very different context to British society. And so we have programmes of work now set up to uh, compare and contrast that. Um, we work routinely, so for colleagues, for example, with Centre Disease Control Atlanta, um, we uh, are currently and have continued through the pandemic having uh, a roughly two weekly conversations with Israel as well. So what it does, it gives us the opportunity um, through to support um, government discussions more formally, diplomatic discussions, particularly if there are concerns which uh, are health hazard related. But then there is a scientific, which is sometimes an easier conversation to have, actually, of genuine exploration and exchange of information. Um, and if I just take monkeypox at the moment, uh, we have been probably leading the WHO discussions on that. We detected the cases first in this country. We raised the alarm. Um, and then uh, we've also, in this one, which I think is important, um, uh, got a, a strong research agenda going forward right at the start. 
and we're working with CDC, who've now released their own research agenda. What it allows us to do is not only do the research in this country, but perhaps marry it up with uh, international organisations, and so we can draw deeper and better conclusions, or one of us can be doing one thing and one another, so that there's information to share. Great, thank you. Um, I'll open up to questions in the room shortly. Um, before I do that, um, I, I, I thought we might just explore a little bit the the, the challenge of building the UKHSA as, as an organisation institution. Obviously, the, the abolition of PHE was announced quite suddenly early in the pandemic. And so since then, you've had to work really quickly to work out how to bring the new organisation together and, and, and to build it up. Um, what um, difficulties has that presented? What opportunities has it presented? And how have you handled them? But I'll do the opportunities, because yeah. that's probably... In, uh, for me, That's I, I like to look forward. Mm. I think we should see where the opportunities are. And for me, we are in a different world. We're in a, a, a um, health security world. Uh, we've got opportunities to contribute there. I do think a different way of working that we've seen through the pandemic um, of engagement with stakeholders, but particularly with industry, is a really important area to go. If we just look at the vaccine work... Uh, there is an ambition out there expressed uh, at the G7 meeting in the UK to go from a new variant to a vaccine in 100 days. Now, I think for, for the uh, pandemic so far, it has been 352 days. Normally, it would take about 10 years. So, uh, you know, we've already pulled this agenda really far forward. But with the new uh, mRNA vaccines, for example, and these new close working relationships, uh, the opportunities for us to turn... Uh, health protection on its head almost and say well what can we see coming over the horizon let's turn it and do something about it before it gets to us and we actually have the relationships and the uh, systems in place to do that is really exciting so in your question one of the most difficult things for me is uh, keeping that ambition realistically alive maintaining uh, relationships with key stakeholders that have only really just come to fruition through the pandemic and then in the background, and it's not the background, it's my main job, building a huge new organisation whilst also uh, downsizing it. So, um, you know, and every now and again, a media report will erupt with how many jobs are going. And it fails to mention at the bottom, for example, how many stable posts we are building in, which will be more than, for example, Public Health England had previously for health protection. So normal things for building an organisation, we have merged three so uh, Public Health England, Joint Biosecurity Centre and NHS Test and Trace. They are completely different cultures in the organisation, so standard thing about how do you get the culture to work without losing all the positive elements of huge innovation, uh, rapid responsive work in NHS Test and Trace, really deep scientific skill uh, and infrastructure in PHE, and you want to grab that and mould it into something, bottle something, which is right for the future and not let it veer back into one sort of pattern or another but keep the positive bits going. Um, we are downsizing hugely so uh, quite rightly along with the living with Covid agenda. Um, so internally we're going from around 11 to 12,000 staff down to about half that number. 
but many of those uh, individuals are not on full-term contracts. And so what we've got is uh, a workforce that I really would like to sort of do a call out to and say a huge thank you to all of those staff, whether they have been with us temporarily uh, or are with us substantively. Um, and many of them want to stay with the organisation. It's actually, uh, they've got the bug, they've got the mission, or rather not the pathogen bug, they've got the bug for, for health protection. Uh, they want to stay with us and help protect uh, communities and individuals. And we are having to say goodbye, quite rightly, because we need to be an efficient organisation. And then I think sitting beneath all of that, there is a very, very significant people element to this. Um, uh, people, particularly in Public Health England, um, I think had a difficult time through the pandemic. Their organisation closure was announced very abruptly. Uh, they lived with uncertainty through the height of the pandemic and have continued to deliver that response. It's exactly the same scientists who are doing the work now for UKHSA in most cases that were doing it before. Um, and we need to recognise that. And so really trying to uh, nurture them and uh, give a realistic but really positive future of what the organisation can be, I think is an important one. Thank you. Uh, I mean, while we're talking about PHE, I guess one of the things that's, that's really interesting looking back is the, the importance of uh, maintaining the confidence and the ear of ministers uh, in, a, in, a, in a crisis. And that's something that uh, people have said that PHE struggled with um, sort of early on. Now, the UK Health Security Agency is an executive agency of government. It's staffed by civil servants. Um, so it might have the same challenges in terms of being able to defend itself when it is part of government, being able to speak independently to government. Um, how are you trying to approach things differently to make sure that you retain um, the strength and independence of your voice going forward? Yeah, and I perhaps should sort of own up at this point because what you didn't do in my bio was I was a, a regional director for Public Health England prior to working as deputy CMO. So um, the advantage of that is, of course, I can see it from both sides and I can be both um, supportive and critical of some of the areas uh, that perhaps PHE uh, were, were, has been critiqued on as an organisation. Uh, one of the things it did stand out for very solidly was exactly, as you say, making sure that it had the right to uh, publish science independently, and that was in the framework agreement with the government and quite hard fought at the start. Um, basically, we've kept the same wording. I think the emphasis is slightly different, though, for the reasons that you have outlined. Uh, during the pandemic, we have had unparalleled access to ministers um, to the extent that perhaps you sometimes like a little bit less because you're running in and out of the room all the time. But I think that is really positive. Um, I think uh, perhaps some of... Uh, more junior staff have been able to join, particularly with virtual teams as well, it's quite helpful, to join into meetings and see that the information that we have, the advice that we want to give, can be handed directly into ministers and into central decision-making. Um, and that creates, for those who witness it, creates an element of trust. And it is that trust when they can't witness it, which I think is really important for me as a leader. And one reason why I think it's for me personally, it's really important to have both that professional and managerial um, representation as the CEO of the organisation, um, because I need to uh, ensure that staff recognise we may, uh, you know, a, a decision, an outcome may not be the way that perhaps they would like it in pure public health terms, but they can have had the confidence 
that the right inputs have gone into the decision-making process. And quite rightly, we will be advising um, and ministers will decide what that is. I think the challenge going forward will be um, actually retaining the frequency of input but the relationship with the Department of Health has changed considerably. So there's an extremely positive relationship um, and we're currently working through some of the areas where uh, potentially there's uh, duplication or opportunity for clarification about areas of work. So, for example, immunisation uh, and, and vaccination programmes. So I see that as positive. Uh, I think the relationship will continue to grow and clarify um, and uh, one of my jobs, I think, is to make sure I've still got that access into ministerial meetings. Great. Thank you very much. Um, I'd like to turn to the room, see if there's some questions. There's a gentleman here in front of me. Please introduce yourself and then ask the question. Hi, um, I'm Toby. I'm a PhD student from Oxford. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you about planned studies for the next pandemic or epidemic. Um, after the 2009 flu pandemic, the NIHR um, funded a portfolio of studies to better understand the next pandemic because we didn't finish studies during the swine flu pandemic. And of course, it wasn't as severe as had been feared. Some of those studies were then activated for COVID, but I think most of the most influential studies, like the ONS infection survey and the recovery trial, were mostly planned from scratch. Um, and then these sort of merged, I don't really understand how the structure works, but seemed to merge into the National Core Studies Programme. Um, and as sort of we learn to live with COVID and, and as, you know, hospitalizations and deaths are really low now, um, how are you going to make sure that um, the really good study designs, the really good teams um, are ready for the next pandemic? And by ready, I mean funding, I mean ethical approvals, I mean protocols, I mean which teams are going to be running these studies? Um, because I feel like if we can respond as quickly as possible... Um, then the next pandemic might be even worse. And, and having those studies ready could be really useful. Um, re really, really good question. Um, uh, I, I mean, I would like to just caveat and say I used the dexamethasone one as a clinical research study and said that that was exceptionally fast. There are a number of those, both in primary care and secondary care, where, again, we have been world-leading and the findings we've had have influenced lives right across the world in clinical treatment. So I think that bit has been a huge success and we've learned and I think we can confidently say that system is very good. Some of the studies that you're referring to, so there have been lessons learned from previously. So um, there is a protocol set up, for example, since the last pandemic, um, and we've actually just used it in, in monkeypox as well, uh, where individual uh, trusts, for example, and clinicians, if we want to understand the characteristics of the disease, so clinical outcomes, uh, allows um, very rapid collation of data on clinical cases so we get a really early signal of how severe an outcome might be and what particular factors influence it so there are some protocols and there's very definite evidence of learning but I think um, yours is an important point because what you're signaling I think is often the further away you get from a pandemic and I do keep adding we are in a pandemic we haven't left it yet and I know many people here will know but as the perception that we're further away from the pandemic goes, 
the um, in every country, this is not just here, the political interest will drop. It doesn't appear to be at the front. There are plenty of other things to occupy people's mind at the moment. Uh, and as you say, that then becomes a negative because we're not prepared for the next time. But what we have at the moment is, so UKHSA ourselves will have a Centre for Pandemic Preparedness. Um, and uh, it's not, if you think of it as a vir- virtual enabling space, uh, we will, we're close to government, obviously, if you imagined another pathogen. Um, we are trying to act as, uh, firstly, doing some work ourselves and identify some of those research gaps and um, promote and advocate for that work to go forward. And then secondly, linking with various other research institutes. So in fact, I was in Oxford with Peter Horby a couple of weeks ago. Um, and the reason for that is, uh, uh, you know, there's, there's a real opportunity from the learnt joint working together to say, OK, Oxford has an institute for pandemic preparedness. Liverpool is developing one as well. Um, uh, each university has its own very special skill sets and quite rightly needs to get global recognition when they do work. But as a nation, can we pull that together into something? And does the whole panoply of research which is ongoing mean that as a nation we have each of those basics in place? So I think the, um, that network of uh, pandemic preparedness institutes is a really important one. Um, and the NIHR, the National Institute for Health Research, working with the Chief Scientific Advisor at DHSC, there is work ongoing on that at the moment. Thanks, Jenny. A gentleman here at the front. Uh, hi, Dame, Dame Jenny. It's uh, James from Securus. Uh, do you mind if I ask two questions? Uh, very quick ones. Briefly. Yeah. Uh, first of all, how would you rate the UK's ability to manufacture uh, therapeutics and vaccines um, onshore, given that it was heightened because of COVID? Um, and the second is, uh, from your previous roles and current role, how important is it that we are consistent with the population um, to try and generate good habits on vaccines, for example? You know, we saw earlier this year cohort eligibility was changed uh, for COVID vaccines, you know, particularly 50 to 64. Uh, we've seen the same with flu um, as well. How important is it that we kind of try and contribute to generate good habits for the population to take vaccines? Um, so I'll, I'll do them in the order you gave, and I can probably give you more on the second than the first because clearly I'm not I'm not directly a, a pharmaceutical uh, manufacturer myself. So I think what we uh, have learnt, um, and you'll have seen, um, obviously government announcements a couple of weeks ago uh, around Moderna, for example. Um, I, I mean, I think I'll make a general question statement. I think we have lots of opportunity in this country to uh, uh, unite the scientific expertise that's here. Um, and the capacity that we have in some of the infrastructure in a more efficient way to be a world leader in the UK. Um, And I think that those sorts of discussions are ongoing. And the UKHSA is, um, we're also going to pick up the vaccine task force, the the main area of that going forward. So again, uh, innovative way of pulling people together, all the right people in the room, whether it be uh, you know the, the manufacturers, the, the um, structural biologists, the epidemiologists, all together uh, on a review basis. And so part of that will go to the Office of Life Science, but the UKHSA will pick up the main bulk of it, working with Department of Health. Um, and that gives us a focus, which is one reason why I'm waving a flag, if you like, for vaccines, because uh, whatever we have had in the past, I think there are huge opportunities for the future. On the... Um, the second point, and I've now, sorry, I've just suddenly gone blank. Remind me what the second point was. Uh, how do we contribute to being more consistent with our 
Yes. So, so uh, there, there's a bit of a trick question in that because the question is, do we want to be consistent when you have a changing pathogen in a changing uh, pandemic? I would say no. I think what we do want to do is be as consistent as possible with our messaging to the public. Um, in fact, what we saw, uh, we've seen in the most recent um, waves in the pandemic quite regardless of anything the government is doing, the public are regulating themselves in their behaviours now, and it's incredibly effective. So what that signals is we should trust the public to do the right thing as long as we give them appropriate messaging. But on vaccines, I mean, the UK is renowned. Uh, The JCVI, and obviously I have worked in it before, but it was many years ago, is a very, very unique organisation in global terms in the sense it is sitting independent from government. Uh, The UKHSA provides the secretariat, so it will feed in the cold information, the cold data, but it is sitting making those decisions independently. I realise there's been quite a lot of noise through the pandemic about when is JCVI going to decide, but I think the public should be very reassured that they don't decide until they have the right information and equally that we have the right safety information. That is the strength of having it. So I, I don't think we can't be consistent at this stage in COVID and say six months ahead, definitely this age group will have it. We, don't, we may have new vaccines available. We may have uh, a new variant impacting different age groups. So I think we have to take the public with us on that and set the expectation. I'm sure COVID will settle down in due course and then we can get around much more to something which is a flu-like pattern of vaccination, hopefully. There's a question coming online which which builds on on this um, discussion of how to communicate with the public and and also what you were saying earlier about the difference between um, UKHSA's public communication and its communication internally to government is from Jonathan Norman and he asks, what have you learned from the pandemic and other events about how to communicate complex ideas ethically when you need to address emotions, fear and anger? Uh, It's very difficult. (laughs) Um, I I mean, I would say that uh, as a... You know, the pandemic clearly puts this into national and international proportions, but any public health professional who's worked on managing an incident, that, let's just take the first sort of things you do when you're training, is a meningitis case in a school. All of those uh, emotions and concerns arise all at the same time. You have to be as prepared as possible. Um, and so timing, this is not an issue of transparency. It's about actually making sure people have all the information that they need at a point when an announcement is made. So you always want to go out as early as you can. But what you don't want to do is provide information to an individual, a family or a community without having the answers to their questions, which will proportionately manage some of those anxieties. So I think being as prepared as possible when you can be, uh, uh, um, obviously having trust before that starts. So I think one of the um, key learnings from this and Personally, although it's been quite anxiety-provoking at times, stand, having professionals standing up on a podium at number 10, I think from what I hear back from the public is that is actually reassuring. Um, and what we have tried to do as professionals is make sure that wherever possible, even though, for example, we have different health systems in the UK in terms of delivery, uh, all of the UK countries are giving the same public health messaging. Now, it doesn't always come out that way for a whole host of reasons. So I'm actually a Welsh resident. It has to be translated into Welsh before something can go out. Um, but, but the endeavour is there. And I think what we realise is the things that we try to do 
are the right things to try to do and we can learn to do them better. I mean, an, another example of this, of course, which is very pertinent at the moment and brings in the sort of ethical area is around the monkeypox vaccination programme. Now, um, right from the minute that we identified the first four cases that were clearly a cluster of unusual transmission, the very first thing that we thought of was this is a very, very difficult message to get across. This is not an infectious disease which is only found in a particular group of people, but we need to protect that group of people um, because they are the ones most at risk. And with that runs a risk of stigmatisation uh, and all sorts of uh, inequalities issues. So we have uh, tried to work with the different organisations, so Terence Higgins Trust with um, British Association of uh, uh, Sexual Health uh, and, and HIV to try and get that messaging right. And it's not always perfect, but the endeavour is absolutely there and it was there right at the start. So I think recognising it is the first point. Thank you. Um, and this question of learning lessons leads me to the, um, the most popular question that's come in online, um, which, which is um, about, uh, this is from Anonymous, asking, what have you learned from getting big calls wrong at the start of the pandemic? The example they give is in um, uh, test and trace and face masks being deemed unnecessary very early on. And how will you take those learnings into account? I mean, maybe the way to answer that is less about the substance, which has clearly moved on, but about the, the structure of decision making. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm glad you reframed that because, of course, I could get into a very detailed conversation about the science behind, behind face companies, and I'm sure many of these questions will come through the inquiry. And I hope what will happen, uh, which is relevant to this answer, is uh, these. Uh, if you're moving through a pandemic, um, I, I haven't met anybody in this pandemic who wasn't trying to do the right thing for public health outcomes. The fact that the knowledge base changes as you go through... So, for example, I mentioned asymptomatic transmission. That was considered at the start of the pandemic. It will be considered for almost any pathogen. It's extremely difficult to understand it from a research base right at the start for all sorts of practical reasons. You, the first thing you see is, uh, is, is patients with illness, and you almost have to work backwards from that. You're not finding initially the patients who have infection but are not ill. So I think having this... Um, uh, perhaps uh, transparency going forward. I think the inquiry, hopefully, in some of these, I can see it can be quite difficult, but I hope the public will end up with an understanding of the different processes of decision-making. Uh, and these aren't about an individual in one place making a decision. All of the scientific decisions were framed from a number of different sources, and that's really important. So even uh, the modelling, for example which, again, gets heavily criticised in places. But these are scenarios. They are not predictions. And we intentionally had, uh, at one point, I think, seven or eight different academic modelling units. And you're pushing them together to say, is there something we can reasonably confidently conclude from this? Is there a direction of travel? It's not a prediction. And you will not get that if you have a, a new pathogen and you're learning as you go. So, um, but the, the meetings, for example, of SAGE, the scientific um, advisory group, um, expert advisory group, has been, I mean, they did a phenomenal job. These are individuals who normally would come together, often from research and academia, um, to give an initial view on something new and how to handle an, uh, an emergency. 
And they continued to meet for years, actually, <laughs> through this. Um, and that information, alongside clinical information coming in from NHS uh, and, and various other places and internationally, has all gone into the melting pot. Thank you. I think I saw a question at the back from the room here. Hi, Robert Ede from Policy Exchange. Um, we've talked mainly about COVID-19 vaccination, but I want to ask a question on the routine schedule. Um, we've seen pretty steady declines in terms of uptake of those vaccines since 2013. How can we best reverse that? Um, so that is a topic right at the top of my mind, actually. So I, I welcome the question because I'm very keen to flag this. And I think it's it's quite challenging at the moment is one thing. So definitely we should be reversing that trend. Uh, definitely uh, we need to increase it. And, and again, we're going back to the inequalities question as well, uh, or, or different communities trust in systems. So uh, many week, if we look around, you can find areas with very, very high childhood primary vaccination rates. Uh, but particularly in London, so North London particularly, for example, and some central areas, rates have dropped remarkably and stayed low. Um, and, and that's despite actually having pushes out to various communities. At the moment, we've got a, a proactive call recall for polio in parts of London. Um, so that it does need a different, a, a new view. And in fact, there, there is work ongoing right now, which has sort of come from the COVID discussion that says, now we can see that we've managed to engage communities for COVID vaccination. Can we apply those same principles? So working through, for example, local faith leaders or uh, through local community uh, rather than just the normal standard primary care model. I mean, that is our backbone and primary care does a fabulous job of getting vaccine out. But I think lots of opportunities. But it's, it's not just there's both an access issue in terms of physical terms. There's a convenience issue. If you put this in a in a shopping centre, for example, does a busy mum who's off to the supermarket, does it enable her to take her child to have a vaccine? Um, I, there was some really interesting information that came through COVID. So, um, you know, young people, um, sort of 18 to 20 year old males, roughly, don't quote me quite on this, but broadly, if you look at the data and then you ask them, they hadn't taken up vaccine very much, but it wasn't because they didn't want it. And they're actually really supportive. It's just that their diary planning wasn't quite good enough to come in at the time. And, and they basically said, you know, if you stand us in a row outside the nightclub, we'll go for it. Just, you know, just put it there. So I, I think we, uh, so it's that sort of nuanced understanding um, and really being clear where people are frightened or people don't understand, people don't have access, uh, people have particular religious concerns, for example, and trying to put that together, really important. The, the final point I'd make, though, is it's, it's quite interesting because on the one hand, the country knows, I think generally, that it's the vaccination programme which is sitting as our bedrock of safety at the moment for COVID and allowing us to get back to normal. Um, but there's also a degree of vaccine tiredness um, so I might use this opportunity to pitch and say when you get invited, if you're eligible for your uh, winter, uh, your autumn booster, do go because that is what's keeping us all safe. Thank you, Jenny. And there's a there's a related question that's coming online. Uh, it sounds very simple. I'm sure it isn't. It's from Anonymous again. Um, what do you think the greatest risk is to public health at the moment? Uh, well, uh, that could be translated in all sorts of ways, depending on whether I'm wearing my professional hat or my managerial political hat. So 
Um, I, I, I will say, and again, this is not in any way a political position for this country. It is a general phenomenon and being seen in discussions with uh, other international agency leads, which is the further away we get from a public health incident, the more the um, focus and therefore potentially uh, funding and importance of public health will likely drain down. And I think one of the things which I intend to do, which perhaps is where Public Health England was has been criticised, is actually to make sure that ministers and the public know what we do on a daily basis. It's actually really exciting stuff. I mean, it, 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 whenever we do talks or we do blogs, people get very excited. And it's why staff who've come in, you know, who've been loaned across government, say, into Test and Trace, and then find out all of the interesting science and how they can contribute to public safety, they're absolutely captivated by it. And so we should be able to captivate the rest of rest of the community um but i think on your uh, your your point about the biggest public health risk i mean you know the the pandemic uh, the covid-19 pandemic is not a one off we will have another one the the issue is we don't know when and we don't know quite what it will be and so our surveillance systems can be good but the reality is um, it's very likely, you'd have seen a lot of media, I think, in the last few days about wet markets, for example, in China. Um, because we are changing our environment, because we, uh, in some areas, you will particularly have the opportunity for zoonotic to human spread uh, because of the proximity. Those areas of um, higher risk are often also in areas where you have uh, lower uh, investment in health services and so the reality will often be that it'll be an astute not even primary care doctor but a healthcare worker uh, somewhere in quite a remote part of uh, of the globe who will spot that three or four people together have just been into a local clinic and they've got something a bit odd and somehow we have to link that to a very rapid detection and support system that allows us to alert the rest of the world and to help them to contain yeah. and there's an interesting question that's come in online which um uh, talks to this actually which is about again from anonymous um about how you the uk should say will interact with health agencies in other countries where the uk doesn't have a positive diplomatic relationship for instance in russia Yes. Um, so, so Russia might be a particular challenge at the moment, I would imagine. But, um, but I, I, as I mentioned earlier, sometimes it's actually um, easier. Many, many people working in those agencies overseas actually come to train in the UK at some point in their careers. And for me, this is a great opportunity, both for ensuring that the UK is safe and have knowledge of what goes on, but also making sure that for countries who have less... Uh, capacity and capability that we are supporting that global growth in public health knowledge um, and for the UK which is, I didn't mention it here but the ambition for me um, and you might ask me in due course would be you know in, in the future what would I like I would like somebody standing in any country overseas to look across and say actually that's the organisation that we need to pass through in our training or our learning uh, before we feel fully fledged as uh, you know, a really good public health practitioner. And to do that, we need to have really good career pathways and an open door so people come in and out. And I, I'm, I'm looking at the gentleman in the middle there because, of course, we I, about uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Friday, two weeks ago, I was down in um, uh, at, at our office in uh, Oxfordshire in Harwell actually talking to PhD students. So, again, having these working relationships 
across the system means that people can come in and out of the organisation and see opportunities that are there. And in fact, one of those, just picking up some of these points, it's not just the science, actually. It's the understanding of the politics and the influencing opportunities that's really important. So there was a very enthusiastic PhD student who uh, I think is going to come up and shadow me for a day, for example. Um, But the same for directors of public health. I think if they can see what it's like inside a a government agency and working, uh, it creates a much better... Um, uh, appreciation of individual roles and how we can work together, both nationally and internationally, to get the right answers. Thanks, Jenny. Um, We've just got literally a couple of minutes left. um, And before we close, uh, I wanted to give you an opportunity to, in a way, look a little bit further ahead. You're in the eye of the storm now, setting up this new organisation. But in 10 years, when you look back on, on this period... Um, what will success have looked like? What do you want to be able to look back and say that you've achieved? So on my darkest days, when it's really difficult trying to do this, I remind myself that uh, the McKinsey's estimate of our merger and and organisational build uh, was at the top 1% of international complexity. So that's my sort of starting point and say, I'll be feeling a lot more calm. Um, We will have a really solid organisation out there. Um, And particularly my people will feel valued um, and uh, will really enjoy going into their work and feeling that they're contributing on a daily basis, which they do. That's really important. But I think if I'm standing going forward and going back to where I started, I am really keen that not only are we seen as the response organisation, but that we are a positive contributor to science uh, and to the economy. And so going to the question about vaccines, for example, I anticipate that that will have been completely turned on its head. And in the way we start to try and predict which uh, drugs we might use for particular um, uh, illnesses, we will actually be able to start turning health protection around and say, this is what we're worried about going forward what is it we're all going to build now, right from understand the epidemiology, the surveillance and when it might hit, to what is the product we are trying to jointly bring together um, and streamlining those processes uh, so that we can do it in the shortest possible time. Many thanks, Jenny. Um, unfortunately, we're going to have to um, stop there. It's been a fascinating discussion and there's much, much more we could say. Uh, I'm, I'm really sorry to everybody online who, uh, where I weren't wasn't able to uh, ask your questions. We've asked as many as we as we can, and I hope that you've all really enjoyed um, this discussion with uh, Professor Dame Jenny Harris. Um, please join me in thanking Dame Jenny very much for being here. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Hold up. 